Oh, Lord, I too ask, Lord, for you to bless your word. Lord, enable me by your spirit to be accurate and clear. And Lord, may your spirit work so that we would understand what your word says and be empowered to apply it in each of our lives in the ways that we need to. We're so thankful for your good hand in our lives and your love and care. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we have been reminded of anything uh, these past couple of months, it is that, and even these past few days, it is that life does not go as we plan it and often goes in the direction opposite to how we would plan it. COVID-19 is no exception. I have been talking with several pastor friends of mine in the last couple of weeks. I spoke with one in Arizona, and he said that within his congregation, there are four relatives of congregation members who have died from the virus. I interacted with a brother in the Philippines, a pastor of a church there. And early on during the uh, epidemic, there were two church members that came down with the virus, and the wife had died while the husband remained unconscious and unaware that his wife had passed. These and many other similar stories exist in our community and around the world. But it's not just COVID-19, right? There are people who are suffering from cancer, from uh, heart disease, from car accidents and the like. In fact, our dear brother Rocco was in the hospital last night having very serious heart surgery. And thankfully, the surgery went well. But these kinds of things are happening all the time around us. And life was no different in the days of Scripture. Life was no different for those within the Bible. We find similar kinds of tragedies that exist there as well. People whose lives are inexplicably torn apart by loss, by suffering, by pain, distress, and trials. And this morning I want to turn our attention to one particular story. It's the story of an old woman who suffered great loss and who struggled to make sense of it all even to the point that she began to doubt God and not trust Him. The woman's name is Naomi, and we find her story in the book of Ruth. So if you would please turn with me to the book of Ruth, you'll find that little book, that little wonderful story, tucked away between Judges and 1 Samuel. And as we think about Ruth, those of you might be wondering, Ruth, a story of tragedy? I thought it was a love story, a Hallmark classic about uh, this godly woman who finds this godly man and they come together in this beautiful way as a match made in heaven. What does Naomi and her tragedy have to do with all of this? And on top of that, how, how does this story of Ruth help us deal with tragedy and trial in our own lives? Well, the answer is found in the central theme of the book of Ruth, the central focus, and that is the providence of God. From the book of Ruth, we will see the sovereign hand of God is at work in each of our lives through the circumstances and events and people, and that there is an ultimate purpose in that work, an ultimate good for his people. Paul describes the providence of God in Romans eight twenty nine in this way, that God causes all things to work together for good. And the book of Ruth is going to show us three truths about God's providence, about God's work in our lives, in the lives of his people. Those three truths which will, if we meditate on them in the midst of trial, will give us strength, comfort, peace, and hope, even through the tragic events that take place in our lives. The first of these truths about God's providence that we see in the book of Ruth is that God's providence does not always mean blessing. God's providence, His sovereign hand in our lives, does not always mean blessing. Take a look with me at Ruth 1, verse 1, the very first book of, uh, verse of the book. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So the author here begins his story with a very important statement about the setting of the book. Notice he says there right at the beginning, it takes place in the days when the judges governed, in the time of the judges. 
And those of you familiar with the Old Testament would remember that the days of the judges were not the good old days. In fact, the book of Judges gives a story after story after story of Israel's rebellion, of the wickedness and the anarchy, of the gross debauchery and difficulty there, of the idolatry in the worst ways, just terrible abuse, terrible oppression, all of these things going on. And the last verse in in Judges summarizes the events of those days with these words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. And so, this very first line in the book of Ruth tells us that this was not the best time to be alive in Israel. And to make matters worse, verse 1 also tells us that there was a famine in the land, there was a famine in Bethlehem. And that really shouldn't surprise us given the state of Israel at that time. God had promised that if they had abandoned the covenant and pursued a path of idolatry and wickedness, that God would bring things like famine as a consequence to them. And so it is in these circumstances we are introduced to a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons. And they take off, they go east of Bethlehem, east of Israel, into the land of Moab, hoping to find food and a better life. But their hopes soon turn into tragedy. Look with me at verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Now, if it were not hard enough, if it were not painful enough, if it were not difficult enough to lose your husband and your two sons, I, I cannot overstate the desperate situation this woman Naomi was in. For not only had she lost her husband, not only had she lost her children, she also lost her means for protection and survival in that difficult time in Israel's history. And from Judges 19 to 21, we see that this was not only just a difficult time to live at all in that region, but it was a very difficult time if you were a woman, especially a single woman. So verse 9 tells us that with nothing left, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Now, let's stop there a minute. Notice something. It says there, the Lord had visited his people. There's an introduction to the author's focus on the theme of God's providence. Where he says here that after ten years' time, the Lord had visited his people. And this is in a favorable way in order to provide food for them. Just as Psalm 145.15 tells us, God, you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing so that we know God's providence is in the hand of when food is provided and when it is withheld. So Naomi begins her journey home. And as she does so, she tells Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab, to to find husbands who could care for them. And they have their families in Moab to stay there. It would be better for them. Orpah agrees. She decides to leave. But as we know, Ruth does not. In fact, if you look in verse 16, we see those famous words from Ruth. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. From where, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. <laughs> well, from her statement here, we can see why this book carries her name, can't we? I mean, such an example here of loyalty and commitment and love and care that Ruth has for Naomi, that she would be willing to go to a foreign land, to go to a land where Moabites were not looked upon favorably in that period of time, and to go there with little hope of having a family of her own to raise in the future. Yet Ruth, because of her commitment and loyalty to Naomi and her newfound commitment to the Lord himself, she went. She goes, nonetheless, demonstrating that commitment in her heart. Now take a look at verse 15. Let's pick it up there. So they both went, the text says, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She, that is Naomi, said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, 
For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? What we see here, the change in scenery does not help Naomi. Notice she tells the welcoming committee, don't call me Naomi, which in Hebrew, the idea of that name is uh, pleasant. She says, don't don't call me pleasant. Life has not been pleasant for me. In fact, it's been quite the opposite. Call me Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, because God has dealt me a bitter hand. He has treated me in a bitter way. And Naomi uses a play on words in the Hebrew here, which if I could try to um, mimic it in English would be something like this. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has marred me, would be the idea. Now, before we judge Naomi too harshly, remember, this is a lament from a woman who's lost everything. She's lost everything. But even in her lament, did you notice her theology? She correctly recognized the providence of God that was taking place and what had happened in their lives. She, she recognized, she knew that the famine had kind of come about by God, which led Elimelech to leave. She knew that God and in God's hands are both life and death. And so that as Elimelech died, as her two husbands died, that that was from God's hand. And notice verse 21, she says literally this, I full went out, but empty brought me back, Yahweh has. Now, she's not channeling Yoda here, all right? She's, she's changed the word order intentionally in order to emphasize a point that in comparison to her situation back then, she was full. She had everything. But now she was empty. She had lost everything. As theologian Daniel Block notes, when she left, she was secure in her husband and her future was secured by her two sons, but now she has neither. Clearly, Naomi had different expectations when they left Bethlehem those 10 years prior. But as Proverbs 16, 9 says, the the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And, you know, I think this is like many people when they become Christians. They they seem to have this impression that that now they are uh, that they are a Christian, now that they are a child of God, now that they've been forgiven, now that they have received the promise of heaven and everything is going to go wonderfully. That there's going to be blessing and prosperity. And since God is in control, and of course He wants His children to be blessed, certainly then life is going to be great from here on out. But that's not what Naomi experienced. That's not what Joseph experienced. That's not what Job experienced. And certainly that is not what Jesus experienced in His life. That when the hand of God moves in our lives, it does not always mean happiness. It does not always mean blessing. Now, some may say, well, come on, Naomi, she brought this upon herself. You know, by, by leaving Israel and going to this foreign pagan land and, and by, by letting her sons marry these pagan wives, she's just experiencing what she had coming because of those. Well, hold on a minute. Now, before you criticize her, Remember a couple of things. One, the text doesn't tell us explicitly why Elimelech died or her two sons died. Yes, it could be the case that these were consequences. But, but unlike Job, we're not given an explanation of God's motivation here. And like Job's friends, we need to be careful that we do not apply motivation to what God is doing without knowing for certain. God was not too happy with Job's friends, when they presumed on God, thinking they knew why God was doing what he was doing. So we need to be careful there. The more important thing to see here is God's providence, even in the lives of his people, doesn't always mean blessing. For even though Naomi was counted among God's people, even though she was in the favored tribe of Judah, even though she had demonstrated and recognized the one true God, she too experienced deep sorrow. She too experienced great loss. She too was confronted with painful hardship. And brothers and sisters, we will be too. I mentioned Joseph earlier. Did he not experience adversity? Right? The favored son of Jacob was sold into slavery by his very own brothers. And then he was thrown into prison by a heinous crime that he had not committed. And then, of course, there is Job. Did he not suffer hardship? He lost his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his dignity. 
And the only people left in his life were those who were accusing him that it was his fault. And remember, he wasn't a bad guy. In fact, God had declared of him he was the most righteous man on the earth at that time. And then our own dear Savior, the sinless one, the Son of God, he too experienced pain and misery and tragedy while he walked the earth. And if all of these went through trials and difficulties, through the providential hand of God, then we, will, we should expect those things too. We will have sickness. We will lose loved ones. We will be sinned against. We will be rejected. We will be persecuted. In fact, I was reminded this week of 2 Timothy 3, 12, which, where Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And who is it that ultimately is allowing these trials? Who is it ultimately that is in control in events and circumstances in our lives? Let us remember what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. In fact, Acts 2.23 tells us that Jesus' suffering and death were part of and were the predetermined plan of God. And again, Paul says in Romans 8.29, God causes all things to work together. And when we suffer, perhaps even like Naomi had suffered, we may be tempted to say, call me Mara. God has dealt bitterly with me. But we need to remember the rest of Romans 8.29. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You see, Naomi's view of God's providence was warped. Well, she did believe in the providence of God. She did have a correct understanding of the providence of God. She wrongly sees it as a graceless providence, as a harsh providence, as one without mercy or kindness or care. But we need to remember the words of the English poet William Cowper who wrote this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Realize this, beloved, that though God's providence does not always mean blessing, God's providence does not always mean trials either. And we see a glimpse of this second truth that God's providence does does not always mean trials right at the end of chapter 1. Take a look at verse 22 with me. So Naomi returned, and with her the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, Ruth. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Stop there for a moment. We see here that, that all is not as hopeless as Naomi believed. For not only does the author mention that when they arrive, it's right at the beginning of harvest where food is now provided. But also there's this man named Boaz who is introduced here. He's going to play a prominent role in the rest of the story. This man Boaz, notice, he's described as a man of great wealth. Now, that term wealth there has the idea of excellent, of virtuous, of wealthy and prosperous. But also, I think here, the focus is not so much on Boaz's status, but on his character. Because it can be interpreted, uh, I like how the ESV puts it, that he was a worthy man. He was a worthy man. And that worthy character is seen in the subsequent events of chapter 2. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of corn after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she, that is Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was one of the family of Elimelech. Now, if you remember, under the Mosaic Covenant, God had made a provision that that the fields, the edges of the fields should be left for the poor and the stranger to glean from so they could have food as well. And as as Ruth went looking out for a field, verse 3 says that she happened to come to the field of Boaz. Now, literally, the author says it this way. Her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. You see what he's emphasizing there? 
the author points out really in ironic fashion. He says, you know what? Ruth is going around Bethlehem looking for a field and she just so happened, and here the author puts in the air quotes, she just so happened to come to a field of a close family relative who, by the way, is a man of noble character, a worthy man. And the next several verses reveal his worthiness and how Boaz comes alongside Ruth and how he treats her and, and gives her protection and, and says she could freely take of the water and eat with them and promises that she can come anytime. She tells the others and in the, in the, the, his workers to allow for her to glean as much as she needed. What a, a wonderful kindness that this man showed and generosity and so when ruth returns home to see naomi and she tells naomi about what happened there's a spark that's lit in naomi's heart look at verse 20 we see her say there naomi said to her daughter-in-law may he be blessed of the lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead now that's a different tone isn't it she goes on to say and naomi said to her the man is our relative he's one of our closest relatives God's good providential hand here was not lost on Naomi. She knew it was no mere coincidence that Ruth showed up at Boaz's field. And so hope sprouted anew in her heart that here was a man who was in a position that could help them. And we see that by what she says um, there in a verse that the man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. Now that first word, those two words translated relative are actually two different words in Hebrew. The first word relative means just that, a family relation. But the second word there, the closest relative, actually means more than that. It comes from a different Hebrew word, goel. And this word is very important. It appears 15 times in the book of Ruth. It's key to what is happening in this story. And the New American Standard translates it as close relative, but that doesn't quite convey the, the word's full meaning. For, for the Goel, he was a person that was more than just a close relative. The basic definition of the word has the idea of to redeem, to protect. That's why the ESV translated it as redeemer. But that, too, does not capture the full connotation of the word. If we're to look at all the 118 uses of the word and its derivatives in the Old Testament, we would find that this idea of a goel was a, both a relative and a redeemer, in a sense. For he was the nearest family member who had a legal responsibility to protect or redeem any family member in need of care, who was in trouble either from poverty or injustice or even enslaved. So I really like how the NIV translates this as kinsman redeemer. There's the combined idea of a family member, a close relative who has a responsibility to provide care and protection for another in the family. And we also need to remember too, as we look at this word goel, it was more than just a legal obligation, but actually it carried with it a, a covenant commitment that was meant to reflect the covenant commitment God had to protect and care and provide for his people. And so Naomi was excited because not only was Boaz a relative, he was in a position of a goel, a, a kinsman redeemer, someone who could help them if he was willing. And that's what takes us to chapter 3. That question in Naomi's heart is what drives and sets in motion the events of the next chapter. So as we turn to the next act in Act 3, there Naomi gives Ruth specific instruction of how to put herself in a position with Boaz so that he would recognize their desire for his help. So Ruth does what her mother-in-law says. She, she dresses up. She goes to Boaz that night. She lies down at his feet while he's asleep in the threshing floor. And she lifts the garment over his feet to expose them, perhaps to make him wake up. We're not sure exactly. Anyway, it was dark, so dark that, that when Boaz does wake up, he sees Ruth there and says, who, who are you? What, what's going on here? And then she says this, I am Ruth, your maid. Spread your covering or your wings over your maid, for you are a goel. Now, without going into all the cultural practices here, what she was asking him was a request for help, and more than that, it was a marriage proposal. For even though Ruth had been gleaning the fields all through the harvest, as we learn from the end of chapter 2, apparently Boaz hadn't taken notice of her. I don't know if she was giving him glances or what, but, but you know, like most guys, he's pretty clueless. 
And so Naomi knows that, right? And so she tells Ruth, we need a more direct approach here to get the attention of this Goel. So that is what happened. Now, some have depicted this whole account as some sexual encounter that, that Ruth was just following the practice of the local prostitutes who would go to the men in the field while they were sleeping in the threshing floor and proposition them. But look, how the author describes the character of Boaz and the character of Ruth elsewhere in this story, that, that's just reading things in the text that aren't there. And by the way, too, in verse 11, Boaz's response to Ruth's statement here, he says that she had a reputation amongst the city as a woman of excellence. Now, that statement would be the height of hypocrisy if she had actually come out to proposition him. That word excellence, by the way, is the same word that's used of the Proverbs 31 woman, the excellent wife. And it is the same word that was used of Boaz at the beginning of chapter 2, that he was a worthy or excellent man. Well, Boaz gets the memo here, and he wholeheartedly embraces the idea of being a response, the responsibility. He wants to take that on to be their goel, the one who would help them. So he says to Ruth in verse 12, look there, he says, Now, I, it is true I am a goel, but there's a problem here. There is a goel who is closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Now, what's Boaz getting at here when he says, I am a goel, but I'm not, there's one that is closer. Well, if we were to go back and look in Leviticus 25, we would see there is sort of a, a sequence here of nearness for a goel. The nearest goel was the, the nearest kinsman redeemer began with a brother. And when a man died, it was his brother's responsibility to be the kinsman redeemer. But if there was not a brother, as is the case here, then it would go to the next nearest kin, who in Leviticus 25 was described as the uncle. He would be in that position as the goel. And if he was not there, then the nephew. And then on it goes to subsequently to other relatives down the line. So apparently, Boaz was one of those relatives, but he was further down the line than another particular man. And again, notice here Boaz's character. He was willing to take on the responsibilities of the goel. And remember, that was a responsibility to provide and care for the women, the woman who had suffered loss, but to do so in the name of her lost husband. So that if children came and an inheritance came, it was in the name of the woman's husband who had died. So this was indeed a sacrifice. And verse 13 shows here how he trusts in God's providential hand. And he says, look, we have to go to the nearest goel. If he doesn't redeem you, then I will. And that word redeem is repeated here four times in verse 13. It comes from the same root word, goel. Again, we see this is a key term used in this story. So morning comes. Boaz goes into action. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Now, why did he do that? The gate of the city was the location where legal matters were decided. Legal matters were settled in the ancient Near East. So he goes to the gate. He sat down there. And behold, the close relative, Goel, of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He, that is Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now let's stop here for a minute. Do you see God's providence in action here? Right? Boaz gets up in the morning, plants himself at the city gate, and guess who just happens to pass by? But this other man, this other Goel. And the author here gives us a wink at what's going on, but when he adds that interjection there, behold, right? It says in the text, he sat down and behold, guess what? Check it out. The other guy just shows up. Gee, how lucky can you get? What a coincidence. Well, Boaz gathers some elders from the city so they could be witnesses to the transaction. And they go through a brief dialogue between the, the, the nearest relative, the, the, the nearest Goel, and Boaz. And the man eventually rejects his role, saying this in verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Because when he recognized that, that the inheritance of the land also included uh, the woman, Ruth, and that he would have to then care for her and also have to raise children if they had any in the name of her dead husband, he said, well, uh, I can't do that. It will, it will jeopardize my own inheritance. 
He didn't want the responsibility to care for Naomi or Ruth or raise any offspring in the name of her husband, Milan. You see, unlike Boaz, this man was not so noble. He was in the line and the position to take the responsibility. It was expected of him, but he chose not to. And I think the author expresses a little bit of, of um, his opinion back in verse 1. Notice Boaz called this man friend. Actually, that word there is not the word for friend. The word literally in the Hebrew is poloni almoni. And it means, basically it was a Hebrew idiom that meant something like this, just some dude. Didn't even give his name. Just some, hey, dude, can you sit down here? I mean, that, that's kind of the idea, I think. So this dude said, nah, I don't want the responsibility to redeem, to be the kinsman redeemer. So Boaz says he will. And he declares before the elders, he declares before the presence of the people there, he declares before the dude that he would be the goel. He would be the kinsman redeemer. He would care for Naomi and he would marry Ruth in Malon's name to raise their children. Well, this prompts a great celebration at the city gate. People are congratulating them. We see that in verses 11 and 12. But if we stop here and step back, we see the providence of God. The match made in heaven is complete, right? Boaz finds a godly wife. Ruth finds a a noble and honorable husband. And on top of that, Naomi finds comfort in the fact knowing that Ruth will be cared for in the name of her husband, Elimelech, will live on. But that's not all. There's more. As we look here at God's providence, doesn't always mean trials. Notice verse 13. It says this. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman, women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name be famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. And became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse. Father of David. Now as verse 17 comes to a close, it's almost like you see the the scene fading. And what's the last picture of this scene? This woman Naomi, right? Whose life had been full when she left Jerusalem, some 10 or 11 years prior, at least 11 years before, she came back empty. She'd lost everything. But here we see Grandma with her little grandson on her lap, and the scene fades, and that's the picture that the author wants to have in our minds, that a mother's sorrow here has turned into a grandmother's joy, that her mourning has turned into dancing. It's really a touching ending. It's a great story. In fact, many, many uh, writers call Ruth one of the most eloquent and well-written stories, not just in Scripture, but, but anywhere. And as this little novella comes to a close and it, it leaves a smile on our faces and in our hearts, let's not lose sight, though, of the primary character in this story. Certainly Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth, they are key characters, but they're not the key character. Because this story is all about God, all about his providential hand in the lives of these people. God brought Ruth and Boaz together. God is the one who enabled them to have a child, which, by the way, Ruth was married to Malon 10 years, nothing. But then not even they don't even get past their honeymoon and she's already pregnant here in Ruth chapter four. In God's providence, he has ensured that the line of Elimelech would not be forgotten, that the dear widow Naomi would be cared for and would not be destined to a life of poverty and despair. You see, the real focus of this book is not on the godly character of Ruth or Boaz, not on their marriage. Certainly they're great examples to us. Certainly we can learn things from their loyalty and commitment. But really the author wants us to see first and foremost God's providence at work in the lives of his people for good. And we need to remind ourselves 
of the fact that God's providence does not always mean blessing, but so too it does not always mean trials. Yes, there, there are difficulties. There are hardship. There is pain. There is suffering. There is loss. But, but God does not bring these things about whimsically, just as he did not in the life of Naomi. Again, we're back to Romans 8, 29. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Job saw it that way after losing everything. What is it that he said? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or even Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. He too had the same perspective as he reflected on his life. He tells his brothers, what you did, you meant for evil. But God meant it for good. You know, I had a friend in Idaho. Um, when we first moved there some 25 years ago. And uh, we built a friendship. Uh, he's at the church that I was going to there. And uh, we, had, we were similar in our circumstances in life. At the time, uh, we both had three young children and a fourth on the way. And uh, uh, this man, uh, his wife, about six months into the pregnancy, she felt a little sick. She thought a cold was coming on, so she went into the OB to get it checked out. Well, within a few days, she found herself in the hospital. And a week after that, she died, as well as the baby. This man was devastated, as you can imagine. I mean, he thought everything was fine. And within a week, all of a sudden, his wife and little boy were gone. And he was left with three little girls to take care of on his own. And he said to me, in reflecting on that uh, later, he said, you know, it was Romans 8.29. Without Romans 8.29, I would not have survived. It was my lifeline that there was some good in this. That God did have a purpose. He wasn't clear on what that purpose was. And in the midst of his pain and suffering, he said, that truth is what I held on to. Just like Job. Just like Joseph. So brothers and sisters, we need to let this story in Ruth remind us. Let it remind you that God's providence is at work for good. For your good. Again, it doesn't always mean blessing his providence doesn't always mean trials either so we need to trust him we need to trust him there's a third truth about god's providence here from the story of ruth that i want you to see again for not only does god's providence not always mean blessing it doesn't always mean trials but god's providence does have an ultimate plan and we see this in the final six verses of the book which show how God's providence extended much further than just into the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Take a look at verse 17 with me again. That closing scene, that closing picture. The neighbor women gave him, the baby, a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. Which, by the way, uh, our second daughter, that was her first baby name she gave to her first little doll. She called him Obed. No, re- no idea why. She just did. Anyway, Obed here is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, that last sentence in verse 17 tells us something very important, that the birth of Obed is not the end of this story. The focus here is not just that now Naomi has this little boy, this little grandson to give a future hope. By referring also to Obed's famous grandson, the author tells us that the story of Naomi's deliverance through the providence of God points to a greater deliverance for the people of God. Daniel Block notes this, the, the birth of David's grandfather signals a significant turn in the history of this family and in the history of Israel. Now, how do we know that's what the author intends for us to see? Well, remember again, how did he begin this book? By telling us its setting. Remember the first line, the first thing he says is, in the days when judges governed. That was the first statement in the book. What's the last? What's the last word of this book? Take a look at verse 22. It's a name. Same name that ends verse 17. The name David. King David, that is. Hmm. It's interesting. 
You see, this story is not just about Naomi. For not only is she delivered by God's hand, but so too are her people. The author is telling us not only was she blessed with her grandson Obed, but that Israel was blessed with his grandson David. Such a well-written story. God's providence was at work not only in the life of this widow, but also in the lives of all the people of Israel. Remember from what situation they were in. Anarchy, rebellion. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, you read through the book of Judges and you're left going, what in the world's going on here? I mean, things were horrible. The author of Ruth says, but you know what God was doing in the life of this woman? He was also affecting the lives of her people by providing a king, going from the days of the judges to the days of David to deliver Israel from her anarchy with a blessed monarchy, to go from chaos to coronation, a coronation of not just any king, but a king after God's own heart. In fact, Psalm 78 reminds the people of God's blessing in providing this man David, as it reflects in Psalm 78, verse 70, which says this, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes and suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. You see, the author of Ruth has skillfully demonstrated here how God's providence has an ultimate plan. Not just a plan to rescue this dear widow from her desperate situation, but also a plan to rescue a wayward people from their desperate situation. And if the story had ended at verse 17, we would see that's the message of the book. God's providential hand in the life of Naomi and his providential hand in the life of Israel. But the story doesn't end at verse 17. There's a few more verses. Look at verse 18 with me. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David, the end. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't really sound like the type of ending we would expect from this particular story. I mean, to say that these five verses are quite peculiar in the midst of... I mean, this story was a literary masterpiece. A story woven uh, intricately and skillfully. And the author has demonstrated some great skill with the, with the dialogue and with how he builds up the, 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 the problem and the climax of the problem and, and Ruth and Boaz. I mean, it's so amazing. But we see here in this story several layers Several layers. But we get to verse 18 and verse 22, and it seems to come to an end with a proverbial thud, right? It's like uh, all of these, this wonderfully written story, but the author doesn't end it with, and they lived happily ever after. He ends it with, and these are the generations of Perez. To Perez is born, you know, wah, 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 literally speaking. But here's where the genius of the author comes fully into view. For you see, here's three layers to this story that he's woven together. The first layer is revealed in his providence at work to deliver Naomi. The second layer is revealed that not only that, but through his deliverance of Naomi, he's also worked to bring David as a means of deliverance for Israel out of the days of the judges. But there's a third layer. It was also written to show his work, his providential hand in delivering the nations. The author of Ruth did not just have Naomi in view. He did not just have Israel in view. He had the entire world in view. In fact, we see hints of this throughout the book in how he refers to Ruth. He keeps calling her the Moabitess or the Moabite woman. Why does he do that? Is he trying to put her down? No, because she's, she's seen as a woman of great character and portrayed that way by the author. I think he's subtly telling us something here that God has in his mind and in his view and his providential hand more than just Naomi and her family, more than just the people of Israel.
But even beyond that, even in the dark days of the judges, God was still at work preparing the way, not just for any king, but for a king from whom would emerge the king of kings. Now, how how do I get there? We don't see Jesus's name in here. We don't see any reference to the Messiah in here, but it is my contention and my belief firmly that he ends this story with this genealogy because there is a messianic expectation in view. Because if his point was merely getting to David as God's provision for a king to deliver the people, Israel, from their days of the judges, if that was his only focus, then knowing that Obed was the father of Jesse and the father of David would be enough, right? It would end at verse 17, but it doesn't. He adds a genealogy, a genealogy, by the way, that goes all the way back to the son of Judah, who was Perez. Now, in this genealogy, it follows a pattern that many genealogies in the ancient Near East follow, where some generations are skipped in order to emphasize key individuals within that genealogy. But this genealogy, by the way, is exactly copied in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of our Lord. But by going back to the son of Judah, I think the author here is reminding us that we're not just to consider David and what was to happen forward, but also David what's considered to happen backwards within his family line. Because the abrupt nature of the list of names, the stark change in genre here in this story, the significant shift in writing style, all of these would have a jarring effect upon the reader. And I think he's doing that intentionally on purpose is to say, this is what I want you to see, reader. This is what I want you to take notice of. I want to get your attention. Think not just forward to King David, but think back to his roots. And in thinking back to his roots, we would then think all the way back to the very beginning, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 that would come through the line of Abraham as promised in Genesis 12 and that would come through the line of Judah the father of Perez in Genesis 49. God has not forgotten his plan. And even when that plan may seem lost in the days, the rebellious days of the judges, God's providence was still at work. And it was at work in the most unexpected of ways in the life of this widow who had fled to the land of Moab and lost her family and came back with a Moabite woman. And then through that woman comes David. Through David, 2 Samuel 7 had said there would come one who would sit on his throne forever, the coming Messiah. And Luke 1.32 tells us of this line continuing where Mary had promised to her from an angel that the, the one that she would bear in her womb would sit on David's throne forever in Luke 1.32. And that providential hand of God continued all the way to the son of David dying on a cross. Again, part of his plan, Acts 2, 23 says that it was part of the predetermined plan of God. And God's providence continues on to today. Ultimately, it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 10 says that God is bringing all things together, uniting all things in Christ. Listen, Ruth was written to show that God is the great Goel. He is the one, through his providential hand, who is bringing back about the salvation of his people through his son. He is the one who is faithful to keep a promise he made back in Genesis 3.15 and to be faithful to that promise. Ultimately, the story in Ruth does point to a match made in heaven. And in light of the bigger picture and how this story fits within that picture in Scripture, the match made in heaven is not primarily Boaz and Ruth. Rather, it is Jesus and the church. Christ and His bride. So as all these events swirl around us, the trials and the tragedies, the sorrows and the suffering, the uncertainty, the indecision, Remind yourself, God's providence is always at work for the good of His people. His providence does not always mean blessing. It does not always mean trials either. But it does mean God will fulfill an ultimate plan. I want you to take a moment, just think about that. Think of all that's going on in your lives right now. Some of you may be facing some difficult difficult challenges 
Have you been looking to the providential hand of God? Have you been reminding yourself that history is moving somewhere and that you are a part of that? Now, there may be some listening to me that that don't know where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, that have not made a commitment to Him as your Lord and as your Savior. I want you to take a moment now as we pray to ask yourself that question. Where do you stand with the Lord? When He returns, and the Bible promises He will, will you be seen as a friend or an enemy? Will you have been the one who put your trust in Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, desiring to turn away from your sin, confess your sins, and trust in Him for salvation or not? So take a moment, and I'll close this in prayer. Pray to yourselves first. Lord, we thank You for the story of Ruth, and thank You for the clear focus of your providential hand at work in her life and even beyond that in the lives of the people of Israel and beyond that even the lives of everyone Lord in the world that you have had a plan from the very beginning to deal with our sin and that plan has come in the form of a savior who is Christ the Lord and we're reminded in this story that Lord you have that plan in view and, and that all things that happen in our lives are, are part of that ultimate plan. Lord, we want to be proclaimers of His good name. We want to declare the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ and especially in the midst of all that is happening around us. Lord, may we trust You and trust what You're doing. We know You're in control Oh, Lord, let us find joy and hope in that. And let us remember the work of your hand in this wonderful story of Ruth so that we might find strength and comfort and encouragement no matter what comes in our lives. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.